Well, hello uh, and welcome to another episode of GUcast. Uh, this is Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, and I'm joined uh, as ever by my colleague and co-host um, uh, Renu Epen, urologist also here at Peter Mac. Hello, Renu. Good morning, Declan. Another early morning, but totally worth it to have some fantastic guests on our podcast this morning. Yes, the things we do. I must say these early mornings are, are testing. They're super early. Uh, although this morning on on my 4:15 a.m. right into the hospital, I was listening to a, a webinar from uh, New York and uh, tuned into Ben Chalicum and uh, Procar Descupta from Guys. So it, it's the new norm is uh, I think we will connect at all hours because it's easier to connect at all hours now. Um, and we're joined this morning by another one of our colleagues here at Peter Mac, um, Associate Professor uh, Shankar Siva, a radiation oncologist extraordinaire uh, here at Peter Mac, um, uh, who's a, a key member of our GU program and also our lung cancer program. And Shankar is very well known all around the world for his work in um, SBRT, stereotactic radiotherapy, and so on. So good morning, Shankar, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Declan and Evan. Renu, it's very nice to be here. Good so um, very chuffed to be invited as uh, one of your first radiation oncologists here with uh, some of my great colleagues from Europe. Yes, exactly, and we'll get to those in a minute. But a, a question we sometimes ask our uh, studio guests uh, at Peter Mac are, uh, do you enjoy podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts yourself? Uh, I do. My podcasts are a bit more mundane. This is the this. Way, by, by the way, this is where you get to reveal your, you know, your your secret habits about <laughs> stuff you listen to. You know, um, uh, I often listen to Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which is a nice little podcast for uh, uh, tech geeks and nerds who uh, like to hear about um, science and how science is deconstructed. So that's a nice one. Uh, and the Motley Fool, which is about uh, finance, yeah, and uh, um, a little bit of Radio Lab, which is uh, an NYC production. And when do you listen to these podcasts? Often on public transport, which is non-existent nowadays. So uh, it's um, just downtime when I'm exercising or uh, going to the going to the work. Yeah, it's really true, isn't it? It's getting so much easier to listen to podcasts, and sometimes it's the uh, it's the mirroring apps in, in in cars nowadays makes it easier to listen to a podcast than, than having the radio on with the, with the ad, uh, advertising and so on. Um, and my my uh, our previous colleague um, uh, fellow um, uh, Renu Alistair Lamb, uh, who works in Oxford, tells me that he listens to us in the shower. Uh, he sticks <laughs> on the podcast in the morning and uh, has uh, has a podcast. Does that make you uncomfortable? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> It's a long shower. Anyway, welcome, uh, (laughs) welcome, welcome. It's uh, yeah, it's a long shower. Do we need to keep it shorter? Um, Save water. and maybe we'll have Alistair on. Actually, he was a great colleague and a very good academic um, uh, prostate cancer specialist in Oxford now. Um, but we are going to speak to a, a couple of other um, uh, preeminent uh, international prostate cancer experts who are radiation oncology uh, colleagues of yours, Shankar, and you're going to introduce these guys and girl. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, very chuffed to be able to introduce Alison Tree, who's a consultant uh, radiation clinical oncologist, in fact, from um, the UK at the Royal Marsden Hospital. Uh, she has quite a lot of interest in some technology. She's one of the leads for the MR LINAC program for the GU um, uh, consortium. Interestingly, a, a little known fact you may not know, when she's not at the conference herself, she's most likely to be found on the dance floor. Uh, so thanks for coming, Alison. Thanks very much for that. Yes, I'm sorry we don't get to dance today, but uh, it's delightful to be with you uh, this evening and this morning for you. We can see you, Alison, so feel free. Yes, we're on Zoom, of course, as everyone is. So uh, for I'll, all the listeners, I'll hold myself back. <laughs> we, we can see Alison here um, on our screens, which is very nice to see you, Alison. So Alison Bertel, uh, she's she's a singer, isn't she? Um, uh, at the Marsden, that might be one for no, um, Alison Bertel yes. works in Preston. In the north of England. Oh, she sorry, is a fantastic singer, actually, yeah. She is. Gosh, there's something about these clinical oncologists in the UK. They're very talented. 
<laughs> More talented than us, that's for sure. Uh, and on that note, another talent to introduce would be um, uh, Pete Ost, who's from Belgium and uh, Ghent University. He obviously has a lot of interest in um, uh, prostate uh, GU radiation oncology, uh, specifically for uh, metastasis directed therapy. He's also interested in, in uh, radio immunotherapy combinations, which is also dear to my heart. Uh, an interesting fact, you may not, if you don't find him at the conference centre, he's most likely taking a photograph. He often lugs around an enormous amount of uh, um, camera equipment, which is ridiculous. But uh, welcome, Pete. It, it is ridiculous, but it, it is something rewarding that you can do just by yourself. So that's getting away from the busyness that gives me my other, you know, my guilty pleasure is to be, to digest everything, just doing it alone. But next to that, oh, I love to dance as well. So I'm, I'm happy <laughs> to do that next time, Alison. But please don't let me sing, please. We should be doing a different <laughs> podcast. All right, it's a deal. And people are doing all this on Zoom, virtual uh, uh, choir, virtual. In fact, uh, Caroline Moore, uh, when we connected with her in London, um, we had to schedule it around virtual Zoom choir, uh, wow. basically, for, for um, Caroline. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're sort of trying not to talk about COVID too much, but um, it's hard not to talk about it at all. And I really wanted to just get an idea of how life and work are at the moment where, where you are. So, Alison, if I could just start with you and, and get an idea of what things are like now. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's been a very strange couple of months. And as you'll, you'll have seen from the news, London's been hit pretty hard, um, much worse than you guys, thankfully for you. Um, so our, our work has changed very much. Um, there's very little prostate radiotherapy going on at the Mars at the moment. We made the decision that because patients could be safely kept on hormones, we would defer prostate radiotherapy to maintain capacity for other cancers that couldn't be deferred. I had neck cancer, gynae cancers, you can't hold those um, on hormone therapy. Um, and so it's been a strange couple of months where the clinical teams like me have been helping out on the wards on a rotor basis to try and backfill our colleagues. Um, our patients are really scared. They don't want to come to hospital. So most of our clinics have been uh, remote. Uh, I've been telephoning a lot of patients, even new patient consults. So that's been a, a really new experience for us. Um, and uh, I think things feel like they're settling a little bit now. I think we've found the, the new normal, as people keep saying, and we're in a position where hopefully we can start to get some things uh, back to normal in terms of prostate cancer treatments um in the next month or two so. yeah it's i mean like you said although australia hasn't been affected in the same way um we we've sort of uh, you know what you're saying as is familiar in terms of especially patients attitude towards healthcare and uh you know having that fear of of, of visiting hospitals and their general practitioners so we're seeing a bit of a drop in referrals coming through and uh, emergency admissions. And Pete, what about you? What about Belgium? I, I read some, uh, some uh, data today saying that Belgium actually had the third highest affected number of people per capita um, after the US and, uh, and Spain. Uh, so surely life is very different for you now. It, yeah, it is true. The, the thing is with the numbers is in Belgium, they decided to rate all the patients that were confirmed with COVID and died to count those, but also the patients that were not confirmed, but for example, uh, died of, of whatever it was, but people felt it was potentially a COVID-like uh, um, death. They also counted that as uh, towards the numbers. So that's why our numbers got inflated. Um, if we only take the ones that all the other countries are counting, our numbers are half of what the ones that are reported. So our situation is, 
certainly it's not good, but it is actually on par with the rest of the countries and not as bad as, uh, for example, Spain and Italy. But it was indeed in the news that we were doing pretty, pretty bad, bad job. But for example, in our hospital, we've been yeah, mainly saved. Uh, our wards haven't been over flooded. Emergency hasn't been over flooded. So we were, we were quite, uh, we were happy to see that that things were rather well in control. Um, Work-related things have indeed changed dramatically. It's the same as Alison said. We made the same. I think everybody in prostate cancer made the same decisions uh, as towards radiotherapy. Everybody that can be on hormones, we will put them on hormones. Things that aren't very urgent, we try to postpone. Um, even patients that uh, are with castration-resistant disease, for example, that we often treat and we image them regularly. Um, we even try to postpone those intervals. Normally we do every four months we do imaging. We, we said, okay, your, your uh, lab work looks good. You're asymptomatic. Normally we would schedule a scan now. We will postpone that because you're 75 year old and maybe there isn't potential risk. But things are returning to normal. Um, for example, we were now, we are happy to have more testing in Belgium and we were actually able to test all our patients that now come in. Uh, all of them get a test. All of them that are currently under radiation treatment also were tested and we only have one asymptomatic, asymptomatic positive patient that we are now uh, treating uh, on a separate machine during separate hours, you know, taking additional precautions. But so now we feel quite comfortable in treating our patients because we have these additional safety measures. I mean, we, we feel more comfortable in handling the situation. So that is a bit reassuring that I think we can get back to normal um, in healthcare. Uh, that's why I think in the upcoming months, although telehealth will be, yeah, especially for the follow-up consultation will still be a thing, I think. So Alison, I'd like to pick up on a thread from Pete there, um, which is about what has changed in terms of deferring treatments. The NHS has been strong advocates of hypofractionation or shorter treatment regimens. Uh, have you seen any further uptake or even more extreme hypofractionation in your setting? Um, yeah, so uh, as you say, we, we switched over to moderate hyperfractionation now that the CHIP data came out for our um, uh, de novo prostate patients. Um, and certainly that has been the case ever since and, and will continue to be the case. But there's an ongoing discussion uh, around the NHS really about whether we uh, expand SBRT or offer SBRT off trial to cohort of patients. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about what what level of risk we're all prepared to take um, and whether we're happy to uh, offer SBRT outside of level one evidence. And I think personally, I feel relatively um, comfortable with giving SBRT to the lower intermediate risk men based on the non-randomized data from the US largely. Um, obviously, PACE B will give us the definitive answer, but not for another couple of years. Um, I personally, I don't feel confidence giving uh, SBRT for high-risk patients. There's very little data out there suggesting efficacy. Um, and I think unless we really get our backs to the walls with backlog and, and problems with further pandemic um, spikes, then I think we should reserve that for kind of the really bad option. I think we should stick with 20 fractions. 
Oh, I was just about to ask for the, the dumb urologist, uh, uh, and I fit that profile very comfortably. Um, but there are other dumb urologists who listen to this podcast like me. So can I ask you to wind it back a little bit, Alison, and just tell us um, what do we mean nowadays by SBRT for, for the primary uh, in prostate cancer? What sort of regimen would you say has, is emerging as the standard, um, certainly for low and intermediate risk? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So um, the the standard, I would say, the most common fractionation used globally would be 36.25 gray in five fractions, so five treatments. And those are um, most commonly given either daily or alternate daily. um, And that would be fairly standard. The other trial that um, your colleagues will probably have heard of is the HYPO trial, um, where they gave seven fractions with non-stereotactic techniques, so kind of slightly older-fashioned techniques of radiotherapy, but nevertheless a very effective regime, so seven fractions, um, which was shown to be equivalent to 39 fractions in a big randomised trial. So I think true SBRT would be five, but you could call seven fractions ultra-hyperfractionated, for example. And do you think, Alison, because we've had some examples of, of uh, some centers that gave us a call and said, yeah, well, we haven't done SBRT ever. Uh, we haven't done it in low risk, intermediate risk. Um, now we are confronted with this COVID situation. Should we not just start because we, um, because we need to? Not sure we really need to, uh, but is this a good timing to all of a sudden rush into this? What do you think? Um, that makes me makes me worried. Um, I, you know, as a, we we have to weigh everything up with the circumstances. But in an ideal world, you want to start doing SBRT within a quality assurance program and a clinical trial, so that you have mentorship and a very defined protocol to work to. Um, and I think ideally you don't want to start doing it in the middle of a crisis where you have lower staffing levels um, and not usual, your usual people on the machines, for example. Um, so I would be personally nervous about that. How do you feel? What do you think? Yeah, I, I had the same feeling. Um, we, we, we suggested to use the, the schedules that were already hyperfractionated that they were used to. Um, and if they really wanted to start with it, uh, we gave them the necessary guidelines and we, we said we are happy to review plans or review or assist uh, even through Zoom meetings, for example, if you do delineation or the, the plan evaluation to, to look into that and maybe we can do it in a, in a dual job if that would make you feel more comfortable in like a peer review concept. Um, yeah, and, and people were really, yeah, I think they were happy with the, um, with the answer. And they said, yeah, we would only resort to it, for example, if our, we get from our four to five machines, we drop down to, let's say, two machines. And there are patients that probably maybe need treatment. Uh, maybe then it might be worthwhile uh, to do that. Maybe if you're down to two machines, prostate cancer shouldn't be treated and all be postponed. That yeah. was an, another yeah. argument. Yeah. So it, for, for the prostate cancer, I think most people said, okay, fair points. Maybe we shouldn't really rush to, into it. Yeah, I mean, there are guidelines. The PACE trial guidelines is now available um, freely on the ICR website. So there are guidelines out there. It's just the practical know-how of actually delivering the treatment on a day-to-day basis that's, that's difficult. Pete, from your perspective, uh, Pete, from the high-risk prostate cancer cases, and I think Alison's already a bit of a convert, but if we're looking at SBRT potentially for these, you know, the hyperfractionated trials, PROFIT, RTOG, CHIPPER, had very few high-risk patients, I think less than 3%. Uh, so do you think that we should be thinking about SBRT or, um, or even hypofractionation at all for high-risk patients? 
yeah, for, for high risk, we've, we've been doing hyperfractionation in the trial that we had running. It randomized 16 to 25 fractions, so something completely different than the rest of the world is doing. But nevertheless, it was within a trial, so the trial is now finished. Um, and that went quite well. We didn't see any additional toxicity for the high risk patients. So I don't think technically there's a lot of difference. Of course, the volume is slightly larger. Um, so it might be that for SBRT, there might be an additional acute toxicity we, we might encounter. I'm, I'm not sure. We haven't done any high-risk cases with SBRT um, at our center. We haven't really started at low-risk, intermediate-risk, yes. With the high-risk, the only thing I know of it is that you increase your volume a bit towards the seminal vesicles, for example. And maybe Allison is better positioned to answer whether they believe they see more toxicity there. But in the perfect world, say there's a non-COVID kind of period, uh, for high-risk patients, would you be hyperfractionating your center based on your studies? Yeah. 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 Okay. Slightly different for us. Um, Pete and Alison, can I uh, get uh, an idea of, of what your experience uh, with salvage SBRT is um, and, and what you think the clinical applications are, especially in a previously radiated prostate? Uh, yeah, so I, I don't have much experience with that, I'm afraid. So we, we don't do any, I think you mean salvage prostate beds, do you? So radiation. That's one of the things we've seen in the, in the PSMA era um, is that in patients with biochemical recurrence after primary radiation, whether it's uh, seeds or external beam, but especially after seeds, uh, we will see a hot spot uh, on PSMA, very distinct, often anterior apex, um, uh, maybe seeds there, maybe not. And the biopsy, uh, in- inevitably, when we do a targeted biopsy, always shows that's where the, the disease is. So um, uh, some cases here, and also at Royal North Shore in Sydney, they've had a salvage SBRT program uh, to treat, to focus on that part of the prostate rather than, for example, have a salvage prostatectomy or other salvage uh, ablation approaches. So that, so I think it's one of the, the, when we consider how far do you push SBRT, it's certainly been a question here, probably triggered by the widespread use of PSMA. Can you, can you safely, focally put a salvage SBRT dose into the primary? Yeah, Pete, are you doing that? Otherwise, I'll, I'll comment on the literature, but I've not got any personal experience here. Well, we, we've done some cases, but it won't be that much more than, than a dozen. Um, and it is indeed mainly caused by what Declan mentioned, the, the, the I think, overuse of PSMA in patients that don't need a PSMA. Um, and then even patients that don't actually have failed according to some of the classical criteria, like Phoenix criteria, you know, you see a smallly rising PSA and they pick up a hotspot. And the question is, is that, disease or is that hotspot driving the disease um, and do does that patient need treatment so we only have half a dozen of patients done um, almost all of them have been successful in one of them we had severe toxicity that he needed a, a, a radical cystoprostatectomy which i think is a very bad outcome following an uh, re-irradiation which is something we don't want so if we see that in one patient out of the dozen we've done yeah, I feel very, very reluctant uh, to do that outside a trial. So, Pete, you mentioned uh, PSMA PET, and and we're obviously using these in some kind of settings, including biochemical recurrence. Uh, off, we three are interested in metastasis-directed therapy. I think I might throw to Alison first, in fact, about the, uh, the NHS. Um, I understand it's now a reimbursed indication for oligometastases and SPRT. Is that correct? 
Yeah, it's great news actually in the UK. So the, the NHS uh, finally commissioned uh, SBRT for metachronous oligomets. So that means the patient has radical treatment to the primary and then at some point in the future relapses with up, up to three metastases. That's what we're allowed to treat. Um, so that's a big improvement for us. Obviously, um, we're still awaiting the results of the core trial and other studies, which will hopefully give us some more data showing the, the benefit of SBRT. But in the absence of, uh, of that, I think we're very happy to treat off trial now. Unconventional imaging. On conventional imaging, yeah. So, well, so uh, no, I would do um, augmented imaging. So we would normally do a PET before doing SBRT. And so PSMA, we, we use it a lot and uh, sometimes yeah. it creates more questions than, uh, than it answers. Pete, what's it's your... Surely not. I, th I thought it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, yeah, so I guess, Pete, um, you know, uh, in your setting at the moment, in the perfect world, if it wasn't about COVID right now, I think a lot of us are trying to de defer treatments when whenever possible. But say in the perfect world, things go back to normal and we have metastasis-directed therapy available to us. Should we, we be using this in all patients uh, who have a PSMA spot? I, I hear that Alison is, is happy that NHS approves the treatment. I'm actually unhappy. Uh, <laughs> this, this might actually mean that trial recruitment might be hampered because you can deliver it outside the trial which I find one of the biggest backsets for us as radiation oncologists. If I don't deliver the treatment, I'm pretty sure they can just go, it's not even 20 kilometers away and the other, the other people will do it. Um, and that for me makes it difficult to sell a trial, um, especially if you randomize first standard of care, which doesn't include the SBRT. So I was, I was for me, the, the UK was always the perfect system because they were the <laughs> only ones that well, the perfect system to do that trial, don't get me wrong, <laughs> trial versus a standard of care, because why wouldn't I go in a trial like that? Because I was able to get the, I had one in two chances of getting the SBRT, which is a, which are great odds. While if you go in my trial, you have 100% chance you get the SBRT if you go next door. And in my trial, you only have one in two chances. So why would I go in the, in the trial? So yeah. I'm, I'm not convinced that it's a good sign. Um, I'm happy that people start believing in it because that's still the level I think we are at. It is still a belief that seeing it earlier and treating it earlier actually helps the patient. And I'm also a believer, uh, but I, I would be, I would love to bring the evidence there that it actually helps us out, that we are improving the outcome for the patient, not only improving what the PSA looks like, not only improving things that the patient is happy that you're actually getting a treatment that doesn't cause too much harm, which actually it doesn't. A lot of, most of the, of the patients don't even know they got the treatment and the PSA goes down. Most often it doesn't go completely down. So patients, it's, it's very hard for us to interpret these PSA declines. If you look at the waterfall plots, we see often very small declines and then it remains stable and then it goes up a bit and then again goes down a bit. We've seen very fluctuating and very difficult to interpret uh, PSAs. And to be honest, if you look at the data that are published, 30 to 40% relapse within one to two years with multiple lesions or again, an oligomet. Should we retreat it? Should we maybe think of including a drug in combination, which I think is the, the way forward. Um, so there's so many questions yet. And if you're already starting to offer it outside the trial, who's going to do, who's going to bring the, the necessary evidence? 
will we all leave it to David Palmer and his Comet trial? Or yeah, who else will, will, will chip in? And I hope that would, would have been the UK. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? And and unlike the UK to be out there on a wing with it as well, Alison, normally we, we uh, you know, NICE and, and, and co are very conservative, really, uh, even yeah. with data that's often generated, pivotal data generated in the UK, uh, often uh, the reimbursement is a bit sluggish to follow, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I totally agree. And um, but we will we have had um, the phase two court trial, which has recruited I think over 180 men with prostate cancer. So that's not as big a sample size as we would have liked, but at least it will be randomised evidence uh, in due course. Renew, so it's, it is great to be sitting here with three of the preeminent radiation oncologists in SBRT uh, for prostate cancer. And one of the things that unites us um, is, is um, uh, metastasis directed therapy. Um, when PSMA started rolling out like a plague across Australia five or six years ago, um, and we were beginning to find these uh, low volume metastases, um, Shankar, it did trigger around the same time a lot of um, uh, stereotactic radiotherapy for these metastases. And we wrote a piece in uh, uh, European Urology um, describing this as like a Pokemet uh, phenomenon. It was around the same time as Pokemons were happening and, and uh, you know, kids were running around with their phones looking at this virtual reality thing, trying to chase all these Pokemons. Um, whereas here in the hospitals, you know, we were finding all these uh, PSMA avid lesions and then and the radiation oncologists were chasing them like Pokemon around the place. And, and we wrote a piece about that. And uh, Alison and um, Shanker and uh, Pete uh, wrote a very funny uh, reply back. And I must say, Pete, um, often in your comments on Twitter, uh, for someone who a lot of your work is fed by these Pokemets, um, you know, find us finding these little lesions and, and, and uh, patients coming in with these scans, with these bright dots and wanting treatment, you, you have been uh, quite critical about this. And and I think if I ask you about endpoints and, and uh, you've designed a beautiful trial, the STOM trial, and now the STORM trial, of course, importantly, which Shankar is running here to help answer these questions. But one of the biggest challenges we have is though is defining the meaningful endpoints in uh, prostate cancer, uh, in, in low-volume prostate cancer detected on a PET scan. Um, is it just because the PSA goes down? Is that a win? You know, I think that's one of my things I struggle with. The patient's often happy because they're worried about their PSA, but that's not necessarily a good endpoint. We just need to, you know, tell them not to be worried about their PSA. They come in with a positive scan and they're, they're often unaccepting of the idea that that small lesion that you see in the presacral lymph nodes is, gonna, is not going to matter. Just watch it. No, no, no. If, as you say, if you go down the road, somebody will treat that with stereotactic radiation. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where we will have some acceptance on endpoints that, you know, keep everybody happy, keep the patient happy, keep the reimbursement bodies happy? Because it won't be overall survival or it won't be prostate cancer specific survival because that, that's 10 or 15 year endpoints. Um, do you think PSA will ever be a reasonable survival or, or you've tried to create a hard um, uh, criteria for triggering ADT, for example? Yeah. Uh, uh, do, so what, what are the endpoints that are going to satisfy um, metastasis-directed therapy approaches in this type of prostate cancer detected by PSMA? I think in, in the uh, synchronous setting, it will, it will be overall survival and it will be assessed in, in the Stampede trial, I think RMM, hopefully. Um, I think in the recurrent setting, we shouldn't be lowering the bar too much. Um, and that I think is what we're, we, we've been setting the scene and that's actually what, what we've been doing that's what, what Shankar has been doing with the Popstar trial. It's showing safety. We've been doing the same in STOMP. We've been showing it is safe. And as compared to observing patients, we indeed see a decline in, in, in PSA, which might be of interest. 
and we can maybe postpone the need for a definitive ADT with a certain time point. But is that good enough? In my opinion, no. And we shouldn't be lowering our bar uh, because we are too lazy to wait 10 to 15 years because we have the, the availability of the techniques now at our hands. Um, I think we should keep that bar high enough. Maybe the next best thing will be time to next metastasis or radiological progression-free survival might be a valuable endpoint, which is a bit harder. Um, CRPC's free survival might be of interest, although it, it becomes more difficult because we get more drugs available pre-CRPC. So I think the type of patients that are castrate-resistant, the classical ones that we know that only add ADT and then become CRPC are, are yeah, we've seen them less and less. We've seen now patients treated with multiple ADT plus chemo, ADT plus whatever. Uh, and that will also come in the recurrent setting. So we've seen now a reimbursement in Belgium, for example, of patients, if they have recurrent disease and it's not stated PSMA or whatever imaging you have, they can get ADT plus aplutamide, for example. Um, so we are now starting off patients that have a PSA of one point something with some spots on a PSMA disease that they can live with for many, many years, starting off with ADT plus apalutamide, I think we're overshooting here. And that's again showing that we're lowering the bar and extrapolating evidence from one setting to another. And for me, metastasis-directed therapy, it should uphold the same standards as we have with other drugs. It should have the same bar. For me, the same bar should be held up for PSMA. The bar hasn't been high enough. We've, we've been looking at mostly retrospective evidence. Luckily, finally, mainly from you guys, there are coming uh, prospective trials, the pro-PSMA, the Osprey trial, that we know where uh, the pitfalls are, that we know how to interpret it. But it also already shows you that PSMA is still not good enough. Uh, it doesn't show you the disease that's smaller than five millimeters, for example, in those most often it doesn't. So I think if we want to show a benefit, I think we will get the benefit um, not in the trials that are, are there designed now. We maybe will get them from larger trials like done in the UK or trials that are done uh, that are tumor agnostic, like Sabre Comet, which includes all type of tumors. And if that shows an, an overall survival benefit, it shows you that the concept is probably applicable to different tumor types. And I think there we will probably see an overall survival benefit that then we will be extrapolating to other disease types. Will we have the definite answer in prostate? One day, yes. But again, we shouldn't be lowering that bar too much. Very good. So we're just discussing in the studio here just to wind up with the last uh, couple of topics. Um, Pete, you kind of brushed across one, so I might throw this to Alison, which is we have, seem to have two conversations in these kind of biochemical recurrent settings um, after radical treatments, one which is bringing systemic therapy forward versus uh, metastasis-directed therapy for delaying systemic therapy. Uh, you're a clinical yeah. oncologist. Um, how's your feeling about drugs versus uh, spot therapy? Um, so I, I think, yeah, you're, you're right that we have the same patient with the same disease and one day we try an SBRT, ablate them with no hormones and the next patient that comes along, we give them a, a ADT, we give them chemo or abiraterone and, and we might give them wider field radiotherapy and, and that's because no one really knows what the right thing to do is. Um, my personal um, preference is to give the least toxic treatment first. So if you have the opportunity to give SBRT um, and defer the need for further treatment uh, in the absence of any 
direct randomized evidence i think that's a good strategy you know first do no harm is what we all signed up to at medical school um, and i think that's a good place to start um, and then you can come back to your adt and your abby or apo or whatever um, at the next relapse when they'll still be hormone sensitive so um you know we have these discussions in our mdt we go round and round but increasingly i'm leaning towards the least toxic option which i think is sbrt usually so to wrap up, I think we've got one more topic, which is of interest, I guess, and uh, it's been very topical about local therapy to the primary, uh, and specifically it's been set off by, um, in the context of M1 disease, low-volume metastatic disease. This has been kicked off by the Stampede uh, study, the cohort H, um, and I guess what are your thoughts about treatment to the primary with radiation versus treatment to the primary and low-volume mets versus surgery to the primary? Where are we at in this space about local treatment? to the primary and low-volume metastatic disease. Uh, do you want me to, me to jump sure. in with that one? <laughs> so there, there's level one evidence that irradiating the primary with low-volume disease improves overall survival. So that's the, in my book, that's the default, and that's what we do. We give 36 grey in six fractions once a week, um, and we, we know that that improves overall survival. Um, to my mind, I think surgery in that space is experimental and it's great to investigate that in a trial, but I, I wouldn't recommend it for a patient outside of that personally. And what about uh, treatment to the primary and the metastases? Yeah, so as Pete said, that's going to be tested in Stampede on um, M, um, where there'll be right um, randomizing to primary only radiotherapy versus primary and all METs up to a maximum of five METs. Um, so I, until we've got the answers to that, that's also experimental treatment. So I, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to which way it'll go, although I, I'd like to see the more radiotherapy, more radiotherapy doing better. I think that's always a good thing. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you very much. What a great conversation. We could have gone on for hours and hours, but it's getting late in the uh, evening in Europe and we're about to start the day's work uh, here. So, um, uh, Renu, it was great to have uh, a bunch of radiation oncologists uh, slash uh, clinical oncologists on the program, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Great to start the day with some, you know, looking over the literature and uh, that underpins what we do. I th I sometimes I just wonder why would anyone not do stereotactic radiotherapy? I'm a big fan, as you know, of stereotactic <laughs> radiotherapy and I, I just think that's going to be the future. Uh, and I think uh, on another occasion, maybe we'll come back and talk about the technology, Shankar. Um, you mentioned that Alison uh, leads the MR Linux program, which uh, I know many of us are very, very interested in. Uh, and I think the sorts of um, uh, tools that are used and the software that's used uh, in addition to how we select these patients, as we've talked about, is going to be very important. So with that, um, uh, I'd like to thank you, Alison. Thank you, Pete. Uh, it's been great to have you on as guests, and we would uh, love to have you back sure. again uh, in the future. Um, I hope you have a good day there in Europe, and uh, we look forward to seeing you hopefully in person uh, again uh, before too long. Um, Alison's due down later in the year, Shankar. Hopefully she'll still make it. What do you think? What are the chances? <laughs> we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Yeah. Um, and with that, that's it from uh, another episode of uh, GU Cast from myself and Renu. Um, uh, if you like the content, uh, please do subscribe and like us. And of course, please, as ever, send us some suggestions for topics or guests or if you want to get on yourself, uh, please do. Take care. Bye-bye.